0: Listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winterhaven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. James is where we've been studying. And let me tell you, there's too much that we've already hit for me to go back and get you up to speed. But I will tell you that everything we do is posted online at our website, uh, oasischurchwh.org, and you can find it under the podcast. If you're an iTunes podcast listener, then you can search for it under Oasis Church of Winter Haven. And I think that the uh, Google Play Store also has it available to you as well. Catch up. James is an extremely practical book. Everything we've learned in the book of James, we can put to quick action if we will. We don't want to put it to action because it punches, it presses, it pinches us where we live, but we can put it to work if we will. And so I would encourage you to go back and listen to it from the start. Uh, Paul, when we we follow one of Paul's letters, Paul's good about taking his letters and and the things that he says, and and he basically breaks it down step by step, movement by movement, and we can walk through the book as Paul wrote it. When James is writing, and we've only got this work that he has given us, when James writes, he kind of takes a a couple of steps forward and a couple of steps back and a couple of three steps forward and then four or five steps backward. It's a circle. So it can be kind of difficult to preach just uh, week by week and not feel like that we're leaving so much behind. So I would encourage you to go back and listen. Just get the whole tenor, the whole uh, idea of what James is trying to communicate. Chapter four is where we're going to be. And last week, what we said, we started looking at James four verses one through 12. And what we said was we were going to break break it apart into a couple of sections because on the heels of two weeks ago where James is laying out the argument that followers of Jesus and and let me just go ahead and say I know we got a lot of visitors here and and I just want you to understand that what we're communicating here today is primarily a message to Christians to followers of Jesus if you say well you know what Pastor Kevin, I'm not, I don't really see myself as a Christian. You know what? We're glad you're here. And this will be helpful, but I just want you to understand that this is a message. This is instruction to those who are followers of Jesus. And here's what he said. Followers of Jesus are going to follow one of two types of wisdom. There is the earthly, worldly type of wisdom that is going to, it's going to look good. It's going to feel good. It's going to sound good. And it may even have a little bit of God attached to it, but is divided wisdom. The pure wisdom, the godly wisdom, has its focus solely on Jesus. And it produces some actions just like the worldly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, it says, will end up in, in division and every evil practice. And then last week it says, and one of those practices that you'll find yourself in when you're following earthly wisdom is conflict with your brother and your sister. And you go, why is there so much fighting? Not in the world. We know that the world is steeped in sin. There's no way around it. Why is there so much fighting among Christians? here's why because we're following Christians are following a worldly earthly form of wisdom that's connected to the desires the passions the, the the pleasures that we're seeking in our life and it leads us to all kinds of division and evil practice evil vile practice and so we end up fighting jealously with one another Because we want our desires, we want our wants, we want what we think to come out on top. And so we find ourselves in conflict. If we were following the pure wisdom that that is that is from above, it would also lead into actions that look like peace, and it looks like a mercy, and it looks like good works. We wouldn't be fighting. Why? Because we're following pure wisdom that that Christ is leading us toward, and we don't have to be fighting for our agendas because we're satisfied to follow His and so last week when we looked at conflict we tied it right back to the earthly wisdom that says look we want what we want and we'll do whatever it takes to get it even murder even murder say no that would never happen well it can and there's biblical evidence that it can even through some of the the testimony of those in the old testament it most certainly can lead to murder and then jesus kind of brings it all together when he says if you even hate your brother your sister then you've committed murder in your heart so we recognize that following earthly wisdom might feel good might sound good might be connected to God, God with me, but I'm following me can lead to conflict. And, and what, what did we do? We so well, what's, what's there to, how, how do we respond? And thankfully we, we jumped over a couple of verses and we looked at verses six through 10 of James and, and we saw that, that there is a humble response that God will, re, he will respond to us if humbly we submit to him. If we, if we set our own agendas aside in order to draw near to him, he'll draw near to us and you know what we'll get to that in just a little bit because it's going to be the same response for this week because we've broken the passage in half let's look at the whole passage and here's what's going to happen Gavin is is faithfully going to click the verses when I read them but he does not have the first three verses of James chapter four so I'm going to read them and when we get to uh, verse number four he's going to jump in okay so let's do this let me just catch you up And then verse 4, James continues the thought. So we're moving out of conflict into a little bit of a deeper realm because it's this deeper realm that is another facet of our, of our following worldly wisdom. And it just it, the symptom is conflict, but here's the deeper situation. Verse number 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns uh, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Let's jump down to verse number 11 where it says... Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Spiritual adultery and judgmentalism reveals our friendship to this world. I'm gonna say it again. Spiritual adultery and judgmentalism reveal our friendship to this world. Here's the good news. But they can be addressed through God's abundant grace by humble submission. Let's break these two things apart spiritual adultery. Every one of us have probably in the course of our of our relationship history, which probably began somewhere around maybe third grade, if you were a true player, maybe the first grade, or maybe you were like my oldest son who had six girlfriends in the kindergarten already. You know what it feels like to have the girlfriend or the boyfriend and only to discover that they have cheated on you. You know how that feels. It is heartbreaking to discover that the one who said you were theirs because you have the proof on the paper, it's the box marked yes, it's not no, it's not maybe, it's yes, and now their actions have gone awry and you know how that feels and we've all felt that most of us have felt that thankfully few of us though that few is many have felt the true betrayal that comes with adultery and I know even saying that word adultery if you have been connected to that if that has been a reality in your life as either the cause or the or the victim you know how that brings up the memory the the hurt that we felt in middle school that's silliness that's a silly scrape off of a bicycle fall compared to the severed limb that is the pain of adultery Even if you've never felt that, you know someone who has. You've thought about how much that would hurt if you were in that. What James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells Christians is that while we may not have ever committed adultery against our spouse, however... Before you, before you pat yourself on the back, just like Jesus said, you don't have to physically murder somebody to kill them. You just think uh, you hate them and you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus says just because you think you've never committed adultery doesn't mean that the lust in your heart is not adultery. in So don't let yourself off of the hook just because you haven't committed the actual sin. The sin is still resident within you. Bottom line is James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says... When Christians become friends of the world, when followers of Jesus begin to flirt with, begin to entertain the philosophies, the thinking, the action of the world, then we begin to commit spiritual adultery what does he say you adulterous people now remember James is talking James is one of the children of Israel he is of the tribe of the tribes of Israel and he's writing we saw it in the very first couple of verses he's writing to his countrymen followers of Jesus who share a Jewish nationality you say what's so important about that what's important is is when he calls these folks adulterous people they will remember in the Old Testament how that God had revealed himself as the husband of the nation of Israel. You know, we we relate to God as father and we as children, and, and he's always giving us ways to relate to him. And one of the things he did was he says, I'm gonna make a people out of nothing, and then I'm going to be their husband. I'm going to step into a covenant relationship with you and I'm going to love you without condition whether you respond to me or not I'm going to unconditionally love you as a husband so they would remember from their time in the synagogues growing up they would remember the uh, the prophets being read like Jeremiah Ezekiel and Hosea when God would talk about Israel as an adulterous bride what was Israel doing at those times well they They were getting close to the Canaanite people, which were the tribes of people that lived around Israel. They would get connected to them, and they would begin fellowshipping and intermarrying, and the next thing you know, they would be worshiping their gods. And God would call those people adulterous people. So when James says this about Christians those Jews would have quickly and easily remembered that the God identifies himself as our husband or as the husband of the people of the Jews. But it doesn't stop there. We see in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation, that we as the church followers of Jesus, we as, as those who have come by faith in his death and resurrection, we're referred to as the bride of Christ. There's allusions to that even when he says in John, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you so that where I am there you may be also. That's a wedding reference. They knew that as the as the bridegroom going and doing what needed to be done in preparation for his bride, and then he would come back, they would have the celebration, and he would take her home to be with him. And he uses those references of the bride and the bridegroom. So as, as Christians, we know ourselves collectively as a whole. I know for for guys it's weird to think about it like, um. Pascal, how am I going to be a bride and I'm a dude? You can't think about it as a personal thing. A collective whole of the church, we are the bride. He is our bridegroom. And guess what? He did go away, and he is preparing a place. And since he went away, let me tell you, he will come again and receive us to himself. That is yet to come. That is our hope. We don't find our hope in this world. We don't find our hope in the experiences that we can have in this life. We find our hope in he who is to come. Amen? I thought that's what you meant. Believers, I'm just kidding, you don't have to say amen, but anyway, believers and churches commit spiritual infidelity when we give our love and devotion to anything other than God. We commit spiritual infidelity whenever we, if you're a follower of, Je- if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's not spiritual infidelity because you've never come into that covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus. So, so you're not committing adultery. It's worse than that, but we'll get to that in a little while. But if you know Christ as Savior, anytime you give your love, anytime you give your devotion to anything other than God, then that is spiritual infidelity. Now... That doesn't mean you can't like things in this world. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy the things that God has given us richly to enjoy. If you've got things that you enjoy doing, there's nothing wrong with that unless it is for cheering for the Florida Gators. That is wrong. But other than that, I mean, if it's okay scripturally, just jab it anytime I can and twist it. So anything that God has given that's okay biblically, it's okay to enjoy. He's not saying don't enjoy those things. He's saying when you give your love and devotion. Basically, it's this. Ask yourself this question. What Just inside. What do I live for? Now, let's say it out loud together. What do I live for? What do you live for? Here's where it gets over into, oh, don't ask that question. Ask the ones who know you best to tell you what you live for. Look at them and say, listen, I just need to ask you a question. What do you think that I live for? And chances are great they're going to tell you something connected to this world. Now, I hope that their response... If, if, if Paul the Apostle were to walk in today, and so we would have to get past the idea that he's from the dead from centuries and centuries ago, but if he were to walk in and he were to ask and look around and say, Oasis Church, you've read what I've written. You've kind of looked over. You've kind of skimmed over my life. What do I live for? I think probably we would all be unanimous and say, y- you live for the Lord. Your whole life is devoted to the proclamation of the gospel and people coming to know Jesus. You live for Jesus. If we were to walk any of the martyrs in who had suffered such horrendous deaths at different times in history, and they were to say to you, what do I live for? We would say, by your very actions, we can see that you live for Christ. What he is is what you live for. But what would folks say of us? What would they say of us? I think more often than not, they would say that we live for these things. I've got four headers, and then I'm just going to list some things. And let me tell you, I'm going to hit one of your things, okay? It's not personal. My thing's on here too. I got stuff on this list. Don't get mad at me. Well, you can get mad at me if you want to, but I can't stop the fact that if it is what it is, You know it is what it is. What do we live for? Some of us live for success. We live for success and it gets fleshed out in the way that we live for our career. Or maybe the career we want to have. Maybe it's that job that we finally have and we live for that job. Maybe it's money, the accumulation of money, possessions, Maybe it's the stuff we have. Maybe it's the stuff we're trying to obtain. Maybe it's just the competition of being in the race. And we just love being a part of it. So what do you live for? You live for the, for the competition. You live for the race to the top. Maybe it's education. Maybe you live for education. Yours or those that you're educating. Maybe, you're li- Maybe that is your life. Maybe you're living for the success of retirement. I'm just, man, I'm living today, working for the weekend. I'm headed that direction. You 80s rockers know that. Maybe you live for the success of politics. You go, wait a minute, how is that success your side winning? Or your side winning the argument on social media? Maybe you live for the political intrigue. Maybe you live for physical beauty. I don't have that problem. But maybe there are those who are followers of Jesus who live their life to maintain or gain a level of physical beauty and attractiveness. Maybe it's the success of your own definition of your piety. What is that? Piety is that living in a way that looks religious and holy to those walking around you. It would be the Pharisees' goal of success, of everyone knowing that when it comes down to who's the most holy among us, well, it's got to be Pharisee Bob and Pharisee Johnny, because that's what they live for, their definition of piety and holiness. Success. That's you? Maybe you live for entertainment. Here we go. Hobbies. Maybe you live for your hobbies. Here we go. Hunting, fishing, camping, traveling, and the like. Boating, skiing, traveling. If somebody were to ask or answer your question, what do I live for? Would they say, you live for the woods. You live for the lake. You live for the airport. What do you live for? Is it a hobby? Is it entertainment? Let, all right, we're already out there. Let's just wade out a little deeper. How about sports? What do you live for? When folks think about you, when folks think about your family, what is it that they write above it? And is it, they're the sports family? You you realize it doesn't even have to be a sport you play, it can be a team you cheer for. Close to home, just telling you. What do you live for? The hobby of the car, the boat, the house, even Mickey Mouse. Seriously, I've met some folks that I would swear live for Disney. If they're not going there, they're saving to go back. And they're too old to ride the rides. I don't get it. I don't get it. Maybe it's because you can't afford it, Kevin. Maybe that's it, but I don't get it. Entertainment we live for relationships well this this really gets hard when you get up into the high school college and and young adult era. we can start living for the girlfriend we can start living for the boyfriend we can start living to have a girlfriend or living to have so so everything we're doing is in the bucket of that relationship that we're trying desperately to hold on to or we're trying to obtain this is going to sound weird but we can fall victim to living for our spouse. You're like, well, wait a minute. Kevin, I thought husbands were to love their wife and all the way to death and that wives were to to submit to their husband. You're supposed to live. Not when you set him above your savior. Not when you put her over your commitment to your Lord. And it happens all the time thinking it's a good thing and being married and loving your spouse and and showing christ to them is a phenomenal thing but they cannot be your idol and often they are here's and this is man this will make you mad shores of world do you live for your kids here's the thing i hear christians all the time saying i live for my children everything i do is for my children you are following the wisdom of this world and are committing spiritual infidelity when you live for your children. I don't mean raising, I don't, I'm not talking about raising them right, I'm not talking about taking care of them, I'm not talking about bringing them up in the understanding of the word and, and hoping to launch them. Will you live for your kids? That's not for God. Well, that just segues right over into the grandkids. And we all know that every grandparent at some point wrestles with living for the grandkids. You grandparents said, amen was what I was going for, but it didn't quite come out. <laughs> Listen, this ain't a bad. okay? Now, I, I, I've been under pastors that take this and they go, bow, bow, and they're ugly about it because you're so bad and I'm so good and you ought to get it right. That's not what I'm doing. I'm telling you, I'm in this. And I've been wrestling with it all week long. Y'all hearing it for the first time today. I've been carrying this weight all week. Look, I know where mine are at. And if you want to come to me later and say, Kevin, where do you fall? And I'll tell you every one of them that I wrestle with. I'm in there. Relationships. Here's one. Ministry. When I wait a second, I thought we were supposed to live for ministry. No, ma'am. No, sir, we are not. Pharisees all lived for ministry. They're preachers that are being defrocked and removed from churches because they live for ministry. They're, they're being run out of town because their egos have, have grown past their ability to tote them because they're living for ministry. God has not called us to live for ministry. God has called us to live for Christ. We commit spiritual adultery when we give our love to those things. You know, we commit spiritual adultery when as Christians we begin to embrace the cultural philosophies on social issues. I'm not talking about that Christians are to be mean-hearted, mean-spirited, ugly, talking about the world, being the world as though they got to clean up before they can come here. Look, the world is going to do everything you can imagine, okay? Can we just go ahead and put that to bed? The world does what the world does, and those are the folks that God has called us to love for the purpose of showing them his love and introducing them to the gospel that he has provided for them. But when we begin to embrace the way the world thinks on things because we just feel like, well, we don't want to be ugly, then we begin to, to commit spiritual infidelity. Because God says what he says, and God does not deviate from what he says. But here's what God does. God says what he says, and then he wades out into the muck and the mire with the truth. With love, with generosity, with grace, with compassion. God doesn't get a, Jesus never got out here and said, yeah, but I don't want to offend anybody. So I'm going to, you know what? You probably have a point there. We probably ought not to. Never did that. You know what he did? He held on to the truth and he demonstrated and in such a way that folks were drawn to him because of how much love he had for the dirtiest of the dirty, which included, you ready for this? You and me. But God says what he says. When we begin to embrace the philosophies of the world, we're cheating on God. When we start dropping moral standards and norms of decency in our life as followers of Jesus, we commit spiritual infidelity. Is this making sense? Do you recognize today you didn't realize that you were an adulterer when you walked in? I can't imagine that anybody that is a follower of Jesus is sitting here right now and saying, we hadn't touched on anything that I'm doing. Every one of us. Why? The passions that are in us that we pursue, that we want fueled by worldly wisdom and we find ourselves committing the most heinous of sins against the one who has given his all for us. What is the world? The world is any approach to life that denies or ignores God or minimizes him to anything other than how he is to be worshipped. We'll blow through these real quick. 1 John two fifteen to 16, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, guess what? The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the, uh, of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Most of the things that I, that I read off of those aren't wicked things in and of themselves. But when the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life begins to focus inordinately on those things, then we begin to show our love and devotion to something other than the one who has purchased it? Second Timothy four ten gives us a personal example. Paul was telling Timothy, Demas, who was in love with this present world, deserted me. We were on mission, and we were here, and and we were going. And Demas just his heart was just so connected to this world that you know what he said? He said, "Paul, I got to go. I got to go. Why do I? Why do you have to go? Well, because I got to address and I got to take care of." And Paul's like, "Wait a minute." I thought God was taken care of. I thought God called you to this. Yeah, I know, but I got, and he quit. That's all of us. We've all quit. Why? Because something in this world just draws us. And when I just, God, I'll, I'll get back to you when I can. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world as followers of Jesus, but be transformed. Don't, don't let yourself be put in the press. I remember Plato, and, uh, you know, you'd had the, the little model that looked like Scooby-Doo and you put the Play-Doh in there and you press it and then you open it up and what do you got? It's Scooby-Doo. You've been looked like the thing. Don't, don't allow the world to press you so that you end up as a follower of Jesus looking just like they look. Galatians 6, 4, Why? Because the last part of that says that, uh, talking about the world, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, by which, what? The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You've been crucified to the world. The world's been crucified to you. It's not our friend. It's not an acceptable partner. Matthew 6, 24, you know what it says. You cannot serve God and what? Mammon, money. You can't serve God and stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. Because here's what we might want to think. Well, we just got to isolate ourselves as Christians. We, we can't be connected. We got we to be over here in our little holy huddle and our little bubble. That means we can't go out and fraternize with the world. We can't rub shoulders with the world. Well, Paul says, nah, that's not what I'm talking about. In 1 uh, Corinthians chapter number 5, 9 and 10, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So I told you, don't, don't be in relationship with those that are following the ways of this world. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since you need to go out of the world. Paul goes, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm telling you, don't buddy up to the world. Don't lock arms with the world. You ready? Say it with me if you know it. Don't be unequally yoked with the world. I'm not saying avoid the world. Because those people need Jesus. Because all of the rest of us were sexually immoral and idolaters and all of that before we came to know Jesus. And it's the gospel that changed us. I'm not saying don't take the gospel to the world. Become their friend. You'll be the best friend they never realized they had. I'm saying don't buddy up with them. Don't lock arms with them in agreement. Amos three three I think says, can two walk together unless they be... Agreed. The rhetorical answer is, well, no. If we're going to the same place, then we've already agreed that we're going the same place. Christian relationships, however, with God are not open. This is a weird thing going on in our culture in our culture today. These open relationships where where you've got couples who they intend on staying married, but their but their relationship is open. You know what that means? That means you can go find you can go find, you know, uh pleasure in all kinds of different folk. And, and, and nowadays, it's, it is, this, this culture is so corrupt. It's so wicked and upside down. Now, now you even bring it into the home. It's, it's bizarre. You realize that the relationship we have with God is not open. It's, in, it's exclusive. By the way, the relationship I have with my wife is exclusive, okay? It's just me and her. Ain't nobody else from the house. And that makes total sense to me. That it's exclusive it's the way god designed and it's the way he designed our relationship with him can you love god and 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 like the things on this list somebody can have this list if you want can you can you love god and like these things sure you can can you love god and enjoy these things sure you can Can these things steal from your relationship and your responsibilities to your Savior? They can, but they better not, or you're a spiritual adulterer, adulteress. James referred to himself in, in chapter number one, verse number one. James says, James a servant, a bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. You know what James said? I live for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in case you don't understand how I see Jesus, I see them as one and the same and the Lord Jesus Christ. I follow the God of this universe and his son, Jesus. I'm a slave. So when you say, James, what do you live for? I live for Jesus. I live for Jesus and only Jesus. When we befriend the world, we actually become, what does he say? Let's look back at our our passage. He says in verse number five, I believe it is. Oh, no, last part of verse number four, Gavin. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You know what that word enmity means? It means a hostile position. When we become friends with the world, we don't recognize that we are becoming hostile to God. It's not that we love God and we're just hanging out with whatever this is that's stealing. It's not that we love God and we're just hanging out over here for a season or a time. No, no. The Bible says that when we when, when we begin to grasp a hold of anything that this world has to offer, then we become hostile. Don't you think about uh, you remember King Saul in Israel? King Saul, when he figured out that God's blessing was on David and that the the people of Israel's hearts were turned toward David, you know what King Saul did? He tried to kill David a couple of times with a spear. uh, For a long time with with armies and numbers and horses and and pursuit, Saul was hostile to David. He wanted him dead, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I have never thought about, about God that way you can't say that about me i have okay so i've been maybe maybe i've been hooked up with something in the world that maybe has been stealing from my but i have never been hostile to god oh yes you have oh yes i have you know why because he says so and we we're gonna get to it in a minute we just simply got to accept what he says we become hostile we make ourselves the verse says to be god's enemy before this is where we we're talking about if you're if you're not a follower of jesus this message really isn't to you because the scripture talks about those who don't know jesus as his enemy Why are folks that are not followers of Jesus, why why would you say that I'm God's enemy? I'll tell you why. It's because of the sin that is resident within you. You, you did not go out and get that sin, but you were born into it. And the, and the sin brings about curse and, and the curse brings about death and, and you are simply at odds with God as his enemy. But I got great news for you. That's the purpose of Jesus. You and I were God's enemy until God stepped out of glory, put on flesh and laid down his life to pay for your sin and my sin so that we could step off of the enemy ground onto family ground when we find ourselves in the middle of spiritual infidelity we're at odds with God and it's like we're putting on again the clothes of the enemy joining the team of the enemy I promise if you're a follower of Jesus you know that's not where you're supposed to be and it's not where you want to be but when we, uh, when we let the lures of this world attract us and we fall victim to letting it rule us and lead us and dominate us and be what defines us, then that's the position we find ourselves in. Verse number five. I'll just go ahead and tell you Bible scholars don't really know how this verse works out. It's a Greek phrase. And they're not really sure how you're supposed to take it, but here's what it says. It says, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that, has, that he has made to dwell in us? Well, first of all, there's no reference in either the Old or the New Testament to this verse. So he's saying scripture says this. So, probably what James is doing is talking about an overarching message of the scripture, saying, does, Is this not what the scripture says? But then, how do we understand the He and the Spirit? Because He didn't tell us who the he was and they didn't capitalize in lowercase spirit back then. So here's what most scholars believe it could be this or this. It could either mean, so is is this not true that God yearns jealously for the undivided devotion of you and I? And and the answer to that would be, of course he does. He yearns for our undivided devotion. If, If my wife were flirting with another man. If if she were running out on me, I would be, believe me, raving jealous. But deep down in my heart, what I would want would be my wife back. So that could be what this verse is saying. And is that true? You better believe it's true. He yearned. What did he do? He left the 99 to go search for the one. He, He talked about the the nine coins that weren't lost so that he could go find the one. And he was looking out the door. He he had the son at home. He was looking out the door hoping, I'm just hoping one day my son will come back home. And what did he do? He ran out and he grabbed him as soon as he saw him. Does God yearn for that? Yeah, he does. But this verse could also, depending on how you take it, it could also be, but don't the scripture say that the human spirit is cursed with envious yearnings, meaning that we are prone to wander and you would go, yeah that's true so any of us that would be sitting here thinking this isn't to me you go oh yeah it is have you experienced the full experiential release from your sin nature no you hadn't you live with you you know you hadn't isn't there a pull in your heart toward the things of this world against the savior of your soul yeah it is So we know that it's true that we are prone to wander. So whether it is that God is yearning for us, if that's how he meant it, then we know it's true. And whether it is that within us is that bent, that tendency to be pulled in which we're always wrestling, that's true too. Bottom line, when we give our love and devotion to anything other than God, we commit spiritual adultery. Verse number 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. It's he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's interesting to me that in this passage, James talks about the fights and the quarrels that come fueled by our passions and worldly wisdom. And then he says, isn't it coming really from the pit of our adulterous behavior? And then he tells us how we're to respond and we're gonna get to that in a minute. He tells us how to respond humbly as though we recognize, okay, I need to get this right, this conflict and I can't do this anymore and I got to make that right and you're right. I am in the middle of an adulterous spiritual relationship with a host of different things that I need to set aside or I need to put in right proportion, and and I need to be made right with God. And if we humbly respond, he will make us right. But then what he follows that up with is, now, you're right with him. Here's what you can't do. Now that you're right with him, you can't go looking around going, well too bad for him. He's still committing adultery and you're still over there in that conflict. I'm glad I'm right now. I think that's what James is doing here. Judgmentalism? Oh boy, we love to talk about it. You 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 post something on Facebook. In fact, in fact, man, is it possible that even when I was reading that list off that some might be thinking, quit being so judgmental, Pastor Kevin. Look, judgment is not calling sin, sin. That's not judgment. Here's what judgmentalism, here's what speaking evil about one another is doing. It's when we put ourselves up on a pedestal and go, I haven't done that. But look what they've done. Did you hear what they did? I, I tell you what, I cannot believe that they did that thing. Putting yourself in a superior hierarchy over your brother who's doing something that you think you're not doing right now. Both of those things show that we are walking hand in hand with the world. Because what does the world do 24-7, 365? You cut it on any cable news channel and the world's finger is going, look what they're doing, look what they're doing. Hey, look what they're doing. That's wrong, look what they're doing. I can't believe they would say that. And what do we fall victim of going, hey, did you hear what they were doing? Look what they're doing. Did you hear about that? We even do it in here. Listen, here's what I know. Every last one of us is guilty of speaking evil against our brother. We are. We see something happening that we're not doing, we wish they weren't doing, and we communicate to another about it. Why? Because we feel superior. We feel like that we're living above that, and we identify it. And you know what? guilty. God said, don't do that. <laughs> Who are you? Look, when you do that, you judge the law. You say, well, what is the law? Jesus told us. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. He said unto them, when someone asked, what is the greatest commandment? Here's what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Okay, but the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let's let, this inf- let's let this verse inform James. When we stop looking at and communicating about our brother in love, what have we stopped doing? Loving the Lord our God with all our heart because they're interconnected. You can't love the Lord in all your heart and and not love your neighbor. You stop loving your neighbor, you've stopped loving your Lord and you've embraced a philosophy that is spiritual adultery. Speaking evil, judging others keeps self in front, and God in the back, which is a bold philosophy of the world. The the world ain't. I mean, they would love for you to renounce God, but they know you're not going to do that. But if they can just get you to put Him behind you, so that you're up front, mission accomplished. So, do we get it? Do we get what he's saying? I mean, twenty nine believers friendship with the world unacceptable judgmentalism speaking evil against you're not only judging your neighbor from a position that you you don't have the holiness to judge your neighbor and you're judging god's law who do you think you are What do we need to do? We need to hear what verse number six says. It's not on the screen, but this is real talk. You say, what have we been doing all this time? We've been talking about what scripture says. This is real talk, okay? Knowing what God says, now we're gonna boil it down to what we're gonna do. And we're either gonna do this or we're gonna do something else. But this is the only prescription that God gives us. Ready? Here's what he says in verse number six. He says, but he gives more Grace. You see, God knows that we are prone to wander. God knows that we are unfaithful. God knows that we tend to let the the wanderings of another cause us to feel superior in our spirit. God knows that. And you know what he's not wanting to do? He's not wanting to take that celestial club and bang us into the ground. Though that is what many think God loves to do. It's not. What does God love to do? God loves to give more grace. God recognizes our total incapacity to be and to do what he has called us to do. And he says, that's why I've got all this grace. That if you'll embrace and you'll receive, then you can walk in that grace. And when you're walking in that grace, then the Spirit of God will push the life of Jesus out of you, something you cannot absolutely do on your own. Jesus said in talking about the vine and the branches, without him we can do what, class? Nothing. Here's what God's saying. Do you feel like an adulterer? And if the answer is yes and God says do you feel like an unjust unqualified judge and the answer is yes and what God says is I've got grace for that I've got grace for that I will pour my grace into you and I'll bring you back into right relationship with me if verse 7 through 10 says if You submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched, weep, mourn, trade the laughter, trade the joy that you once found in that relationship with whatever it is of the world. If you'll trade that for a broken heart, if you'll humble yourself before the Lord, he will what? he'll come down and he'll pick you up and he'll embrace you. And like the one who found himself in the pig pen, he'll go, get a ring, get a robe, get some sandals, fatten the calf. My son has been wandering. My daughter who's been out there committing infidelity on me has come home. Let's celebrate. What would it look like if every one of us who know good and well, we're running around on God? We know it. If every one of us who know we're slinging mud all over everybody, what would it look like in the throne room? If every one of us would just humbly respond to that grace that is available. You think there'd be rejoicing in the throne room? <laughs> I think it would be a party. And my goodness, what would it look like if we walked out the door and that actually stuck? That we were going to be singularly devoted to our Lord. We were going to let go. We were going to, we were going to put those that are, that are falling around us, put them aside and not talk about what would it look like? I think it would look like a bunch of folks ready to share an authentic faith with a world who is dying lost and in need. But you know what? I think it'd be a party in the throne room if just one of us responded. And you could be the one that God is drawing. You could be the one that says, I'm gonna quit today, I'm coming home. Here's the questions to ask. Number one, in what ways are you cheating on God? If it's a bad thing, stop it. If it's a bad thing, quit it, quit it. But if it's a good thing, if it's a good thing that's just kind of gotten out of sorts, put it where it belongs. It might need to go. It might have such a hold on your heart that you can't function. If it's in the house, you're going to pick it up and play with it. Too long. Focus on it too much. So it might be a good thing that you need to say goodbye to, but at least put it in its proper place. And then I want to to encourage you to do something that I feel confident you're not going to want to do. But when you answer to the question, with what am I cheating on God? And if I move it and I put it in proportion, I put it in its right place. I want to encourage you to confess that to another brother or sister. Somebody that you trust, don't you look them in the eye and say, you know what? We, We learned out of James 4. Man, about spiritual adultery, I just got to let you know, man, God was moving on my heart, and he showed me that I was really giving my love and devotion that was reserved for him. I was giving it to, and it's your thing. And you know what? I just recognize that that can't rule my life. It's a good thing, and it can't rule my life. He's got to rule my life. So I want to encourage you. When you get it right, tell somebody. You go, why in the world would you want me? That's private. Uh, We'll get to it in James There's something about being vulnerable with your brother. Because you know what? They may be wrestling with whether or not they need to do that or not. And they hear you say it and admit it. And they go, huh. Well, you know what? I kind of have been holding on to it. And next thing you know, it's iron sharpening iron. Doing exactly what God called us to do. Second question. On whom are you slinging mud? On whom are you talking? Are you, who is it that you're speaking judgmental about? It may be wrong what they're doing, but who is it that you're talking about? Here's what you do. Go to them. If they're doing wrong, go to them and tell them about it. Hoping that you might restore them to fellowship. If you're not going to do that or if you've done that and they've ignored it, pray for them. Ask God to restore them, not to kill them, not to to sweep the rug out from under them, but to restore them, to bring them into right fellowship. Either way, shut up about them. Quit talking about them. And then if you've talked about them to somebody, this hurts. Go confess your sin to the one you've talked to them about. Man, that's going to be hard. But you know what God says? I got grace for that. You you walk in my way, you'll never run out of grace. You'll always have what you need. It's good news. I hope it's news that you will embrace and receive as yours because you're the only one who can embrace it for you. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. It is hard hitting. I mean... It's hard to preach, Lord. Those, those passages are so real to me. And I want these folks to know it. They need to know that I ain't got it figured out. My life ain't uh, ain't supernatural. Different from there. I wrestle with the same stuff. God, your word is clear and no getting around it. I pray that you'll help us just to forget what it will look like, not having what we've been walking with. Just forget all of that and go, you know what? What could I love and be committed to more than my Savior? And it do me any eternal good. Father, I'm going to set it where it ought to be. I want you and only you. I pray that you'll give me the courage to, to want that, to do that, to step into the grace that you provided and allow you to lead. With heads bowed and eyes closed, walk into that grace. Let him wrap his arms around you. Don't be stubborn. Let him show you what's captivated your heart. Put it in its right place. So, Father, we ask that you will move in a powerful way in our hearts and in our minds. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Jesus took our place on the cross so that he might pay the the sin's price for every one of us. Father, I just want to pray for that one that may be here today that doesn't know you as Savior. May they they hear of the grace of God that is available to his children. When they stumble and fall and bumble and blow it, may they hear of of a God that is not a a wicked, mean-spirited God, but one who is truthful and loving and gracious. And God, may they recognize that that love and grace and mercy is available to them. If by faith they will trust Jesus as the only Savior the only redeemer, and through his resurrection, the only justifier of those of us who find ourselves in sin. May they want him today. And maybe in their heart right now, they would just say, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe your son Jesus died for me. I believe he rose from the dead. He's alive now. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I believe he did it for me. And I want to receive that as payment for my sin. God, I want you to save me. I want you to forgive me. I want you to make me your child. And then, Father, I pray you'll give them the courage to come find me before they leave. To tell me what has happened in their life. So that we might celebrate and rejoice with them. Now, God, we ask that you'll use us. Some of us might have to wrestle with this for a few days, but I pray your Holy Spirit will not get out of the gas. But he'll stay on it and press and press and press till we finally submit for your glory so that you may use us in whatever way you see fit. We love you and we thank you. First, in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said,